Good afternoon. Lately, I've been talking about Exodus 34. And don't worry, this is the last time I'm going to talk about it. Exodus 34, that passage that's a mountaintop moment where Moses says to God, show me your glory. And God says, I'll show you my goodness. And then he gives this poem that gives these different traits that he has to, let's see, I think I lost my connection here. Pardon me just a second. This has worked every time before. Maybe it's too far away from the, uh, the computer there. Can you command tab and command tab back real quick? Sorry about this. It's, it's going to be easier if I'm controlling this up here, I think. It's not there. Okay. Well, I will walk you through this. Just click next. Okay. All right. We've been talking about this passage, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Click next there. We've been talking all about that top part, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loyal love and truth. I have not talked about this second part, and I know that some people have probably wondered about it. It's the part that says, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Sorry, I've lost my feet here, so I'm going to have to turn around and look at it. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the sons and the sons' sons to the third and fourth generation. That's that's challenging for some people. Uh, In fact, there are a rising tide of American churches where they go to this verse and they read into it an idea of a family curse, that you're cursed for what your ancestors do. And they even have things, they'll, they'll give you rites and rituals to, to cleanse yourself of the family curse. But is that what God is saying here? Is he saying that he's going to hold you accountable for other people's sins? I'm going to try this one more time, see if we can find it. No, it doesn't look like it. All right, that's not what it's saying. Let's start by looking at the wider context. Let's go back, click next, to the Ten Commandments. It's actually quoting from the Ten Commandments in the commandment about idolatry, where it says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Do you see what's, what's added there? Those who hate me, those who love me. Well, what about the father who hates God, who has a son who loves God? What then? Well, we actually get an answer in another scroll of Moses. If we go forward to Deuteronomy, you can click next there. We get this very clear statement in Deuteronomy 24, 16 that says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. That's the standard given to the judges of Israel. So we have to ask ourselves, sure you can take a look at it. Is God going to hold himself to a lower standard than the judges of Israel? Well, we actually get an even clearer passage on this much, much later in time. You can, you can click next there. In Ezekiel's time, after Israel has been taken into exile, they're, they're complaining. They're saying, woe is us. We're suffering because of what our parents did. And God devotes half a chapter's worth of material of a speech he gives to Ezekiel 
saying, look, all you people saying this, stop saying this. It's not true. You're not any better than your parents were. In fact, I'm just going to diagram this out for you. You can, you can hit next. He basically says, <laughs> we're going to go through three generations. I'm going to show you how this works. If you have a hypothetical person who's a, a righteous man who's obeying me and he's, and he's you know, taking care of the poor, he's not committing idolatry, he's okay. You can hit next there. He's going to be okay. He's going to live. But suppose he has a son. You can click next. And that son does, is evil. He's just the worst. He just abuses people, oppresses them. He commits idolatry. He's not going to be okay. Did you get it to work? How'd you do that? Okay. It does. Okay. He's not going to be okay. And then he says, but suppose, <laughs> but suppose he has a son, and that son sees his father, and he decides, I'm not going to do what my dad did. And he does all the right things. He executes God's judgment, and he takes care of the poor. He does all his duties. He's going to be okay again. And he sums it up at the end by saying, out of that whole section in Ezekiel 18, he says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Each one is responsible for his own guilt. So then, we come back to Exodus 34, 6. We know what it's not saying, but what is it saying then? What is this talking about here? Lost my connection again. Maybe it's just too far away. Oh, there it is. Okay. So what is it saying? Well, believe it or not, this passage, the whole passage was supposed to be taken as a positive statement. At least that's how Moses took it, and we'll see that in a second. The first part to understanding that is, uh, I've, I've had this up before, I'll try to briefly explain it again. The whole thing is given in a poetic structure, which I've outlined a little bit here. If you lived 3,000 years ago, you wouldn't need this outline, just like I wouldn't need to outline to you how roses are red, violets are blue works. You'll, uh, I suppose, have to just trust me that this is, uh, I lost it again. I might have to hold this up here in the air. This Also, this is the last time I'm ever doing slides, <laughs> I think. I'm serious. Uh, all right. So click next on that. This is like an onion structure to this, this poem. It's a, it takes thoughts and puts them in parallel or contrasts them based on concentric circles. And there's two of them, actually, in this passage. Verse 6 is mostly focused on God's love, on his mercy. And verse 7 is mostly focused on his justice, on his judgment. And this passage kind of shows how they get to be brought into tension with each other. And at the very center, you can see how this is supposed to relate. God is slow to anger, yet he by no means clears the guilty. You can click next there. Another feature of it is that it's all held together by the one trait that is repeated twice in the whole thing, which is his chesed love, his steadfast love. And that's the overriding emphasis of both of them. It's the thing that ties them together. So if you click next, what it does is it puts these two thoughts in parallel right here, that God keeps steadfast love for thousands. 
but he visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the sons and the sons' sons to the third and the fourth. And your Bible probably says generations right here, which is, is logical. That's probably the meaning. But it's not in the original text. And the reason it's probably not there is to draw your ear to seeing that connection right there. Mercy to thousands, visiting the iniquity to the third and the fourth. And those are actually both Hebrew uh, idioms themselves. Thousand generations, when you run across that in the Bible, it often just means forever. And when you run across three yet four, it often just has the idea of however many is necessary. However many is necessary. So what this is telling us, and what it told Moses, as we'll see in a second, is that God's mercy meter, his mercy dial, is turned up to a thousand. But the justice meter is not zero. That three to four really matters a lot. But Moses gets the point that this is primarily about mercy. If we jump forward to later on in Numbers, Numbers 14, the 12 spies fiasco. You probably all remember. Israel comes up to the promised land. The spies go in. They come back. They say, oh, those people are too big. And all the Israelites say, why didn't you just let us die in the wilderness? Uh, Because we can't go in there. We don't trust God to protect us. And God says, I've had it with you guys. (laughs) I've had it. I'm done with this. I'm going to disinherit you. I'm going to start over with Moses. And Moses goes to God to ask for forgiveness. And what comes to Moses' mind when he goes to ask for forgiveness? It's this passage. He says, Just as you have spoken, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he, but, uh, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation. We probably wouldn't think to quote that part. He did in asking this. He basically says, therefore, pardon the iniquity of the people, I pray, according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Now, part of the reason that that probably occurred to Moses that way is also because this word forgiving is probably the most important word in this, because if you are reading this whole section in its narrative sequence, what just happened was the golden calf a couple chapters earlier, and God has not said between that and here what's going to happen. That's been hanging in the air all this time, because Israel basically cheated on God on the wedding night, basically. As they were going to go into this covenant, they they built an idol and started worshiping it. So the question is, How is he going to solve this? He hasn't said yet. Is he going to disinherit them or destroy them? But this is the moment. This is the moment that God puts forgiveness on the table. And that's probably why this is the moment that that Moses remembers over at the the 12 12 spies, uh, uh, that that whole fiasco. That's probably why that comes to his mind, that, that this is the thing to stand on. So the point of this statement is that God's judgment is limited, or I'm sorry, his ju- yes, his judgment is limited, but his mercy is limitless. So we should never invert this passage to read it as a statement of God's severity, primarily, on multiple generations. It's performing the opposite function in the flow of the text. Now, that still leaves us with the question, though, what about the third and the fourth? What, what is that doing here? Well, I'd like to put an idea before you for that. I've seen a lot of scholars who've noted that when we talk about three to four generations, we may not be talking vertically. We might be talking horizontally because that is the number of generations that you usually have alive at any given time. 
at any given time, you're, you're likely to have three to four generations around. And the big idea here is that sin does matter. It does matter, and it does affect other people. It doesn't just affect you. Sin, in a way, has a blast radius that affects everybody that's in your circle and those who depend on you in different ways. In fact, the word for iniquity in that passage, passage we read is usually used like it's, a, like it's a weight. It's this heavy weight that must be lifted. And in fact, the word forgiveness just literally means lifting up. I'm not going to lift up the weight. And if you think about the way sin plays out in a family, it is like a weight. If you, if you continue that going, it's like this, this ball that just rolls down a hill, and it's going to affect everybody in its path. And so in a very real sense, our, our sins do curse our children, both through the impact of, of what we do, what our sins directly do, and also what we're modeling for our children, that they're going to have a hard time breaking out from, from learning and emulating. So that it is, in a sense, a curse. I mean, just ask anyone who is the child of infidelity or anger or addiction. The fallout of sin just gets heavier the longer it continues to go on from generation to generation as children act like their parents until somebody puts a stop to it. But even if you're a kid listening to this, this matters for you too. You have a blast radius with your friends. The, the things that you do are going to affect them. You have more influence than you probably think you do. And even the things you think you can hide, you think you might have some hidden sins that aren't going to change anything, they will too because all of those things are going to change the way you grow. You're going to grow in this direction instead of that direction that God wanted to take you. God's trying to form you and prepare you into a certain shape, the kind of person who's going to be able to, to be in a certain circumstance and see what's going on, see where the needs are, and help people and address them. And you're not going to be that person as long as you let these other things grow and fester. Sin always has a blast radius. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And God didn't hold the next generation accountable for the sins. In fact, he led them into the promised land, that second generation. But they still had to grow up in the wilderness because they were still in the blast radius of their parents. Now, I've tried to show you that Exodus 34, 7 is not about family curses. Uh, but we haven't really addressed a larger concept that is in the Bible that people call corporate justice or corporate ret retribution. The idea that God does judge whole tribes and whole nations sometimes. And he does. And he will. In prophecy, we're not done with that. There will be more of that. And that is hard for a lot of people in our culture because we're such an individualistic society. And if that's a difficult thing for you, it's going to take a deep di uh, Bible study. It's probably more than could even be really talked about in a sermon. But I do want to give you this one thought. I want to leave you with this one thought about corporate justice in the Bible. To just remember that our faith, our invitation to be in God's family, our hope for eternal life, as well as the hope for all the billions of people who will have an opportunity in the second resurrection to know God and be part of his family, all of that rests on a single act of corporate justice, a single act of corporate justice in which one person was made to be sin for all. And all people can stand before God clothed in the righteousness of the one, the one who died for us. That is the most unfair thing that has ever happened. And yet that is the thing that our hope completely relies on. So Exodus 34, 7 
originally expressed God's forgiveness at a pivotal moment in Israel's history. It's not a family curse, but God warns you that if you lead your family into opposing God, you are burning your own house down. Your sins are your own, but they have a blast radius. It always does. We are all in this together in a very real way. The big idea of Exodus 34-7 is is that God is just. He does not tolerate injustice, and for that we're ultimately thankful. And yet, his steadfast love is the characteristic that goes beyond all others in defining God. 